0: Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck. A podcast where visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov.
1: I think people should have more choice, and by more choice what I mean is I mean one issue with with you know a lot of American city zoning is You know, it's really hard to zone and finance for large units in in kind of your city centers. You know, in other countries, in big cities, a family can choose to raise a family in the summers, but they can also choose to be in a city center because there's more unit types that accommodate like larger households. And there are definitely some cities who have made positive steps in that direction. Like Vancouver, you know, is very intentional about zoning for families in the city center, but American cities are mostly not. Historically, what we've done is said, You know, you have office towers in the center, and then you have suburbs for housing on the outside. Um, But there's also a lot of opportunity there in terms of thinking about, like, we can have more housing, more distributed in more places, so people have more choice about where and how they want to live, instead of being kind of shoehorned into these more prescriptive-specific options.
0: Joining me in the deep end today for our housing series is Kim Mai Cutler, a partner at Initialized who invests in prop tech, real estate, and climate. Kim's background as a financial markets reporter and early states venture startup enthusiast allowed her to broaden her reporting to include the intersection of the tech industry and public policy. In 2014, her TechCrunch essay titled, How Burrowing Owls Lead to Vomiting Anarchists, or SS Housing Crisis Explained, sparked almost a decade of public policy advocacy, but changed a number of state laws in California around housing and zoning. As our first guest in this housing series, it's only fitting that we invited Kim to help us understand why housing is a key problem we're solving, what the implications are around the current state of things, and which different bottlenecks founders can work on addressing. We hope this conversation will give you a nuanced understanding of a complex market and practical tactics for voting in the housing space. Kimmai Cutler, welcome to The Deep End.
1: Nice to meet you, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to speak with you on like 15 different levels. I wanna start here by going a bit into your background as it relates to this broad series we're doing. Um, With this series on The Deep End, we're really interested in how problems in the technology industry intersect with problems in the real world, which directly leads into your background as a reporter um, at TechCrunch, much of your beat intersected with that intersection of technology and then problems in public policy. Can you just explain what that beat looked like and how, as a venture capitalist, you're now thinking about some of those issues today?
1: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't my intention to cover. Like, this is a thing that I kind of ended up when, I mean, you're a reporter and you follow crumb by crumb of story by story, and then it becomes like a much larger piece or a much larger thread of a much larger issue. And so like, you know, I had been covering tech and early stage finance for many, many years. And then in the mid-2010s, I was just feeling and noticing a lot of kind of stress in between uh, the, the technology industry, which had just by then really started, really like came into its own as a force within San Francisco, and the tensions with the broader Bay Area community, which is where I had grown up and where my family's been for, you know, like 70 years. and And You know, I started to ask questions about why the built environment in Silicon Valley looked the same as it did in the 1950s or the 1970s, why, you know, the region was producing these trillion-dollar companies, and yet, you know, the place was covered in kind of strip malls and flat commercial office parks and really poor public transit. And I wanted to know why, because it seemed like if we had all this creative ingenuity, Uh, technological innovation. We should be able to do something that's so much more substantial. And so I started pulling on different threads and realizing, you know, looking into the history of housing, infrastructure, public finance, um, and started to realize, you know, after the mid 20th century, when we had built all these suburbs and had this great period of American prosperity, and the generation that had come into power started enacting all kinds of restrictions and veto points you know, everything from very small projects to very large projects through, you know, our system. And so, whereas it had been really easy to build a lot of housing in the 1950s, it became substantially more and more difficult over time through the 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond. And so I kind of wanted to unpack all those different little pieces and choices that our community had made, you know, in little micro steps, but not realizing what we had, had done overall over the, the long period. And that, that, you know, I started writing about it. I wrote a really long, like 13,000 word story about it that convinced a lot of people, that convinced like three or four really key individuals to leave their jobs and start housing advocacy orgs, one of which I'm on the board of, which is California IMB, which is a 501c4. We've passed like, I mean, we do about, I want to say at this point, like California IMB is involved with about changing like at around a half dozen or six California state laws a year around kind of untangling all of these rest different restrictions that we put in place, and then in parallel to that, I joined Initialized Capital and have led a lot of deals in exactly you know the, the the area that you're talking about, which is just where software and tech meets the real world, and that encompasses encompasses everything from kind of prop tech, housing affordability, to construction to, to to climate tech. So when some people write essays like it's time to build, like I actually put my money to work there, and I put our our firm's money to work there.
0: I'd love to hear million follow-ups there, too. I'd love to hear from you about what some of those restrictions or obstacles are. So if you're sitting, let's say, in 2015, broader Bay Area, what are the obstacles in the way of building, construction, housing, those different things?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of pieces we've already started to untangle, you know, some of which are things like height limits, uh, floor area limits, you know, the amount of built space you can you know like how much how much of a given lot you can cover in a building um, or into build or with a built project versus like how much has to be left for parking uh, minimums that kind of stuff and so that that stuff we've actually made I would say like a pretty significant amount of progress on over the last five years in California we passed an 80 an ex- accessory dwelling unit law which makes it really easy to build backyard units and granny flats and made a more straightforward ministerial process around that because prior to that You know there are a lot of cities where you know you could just you know pay six hundred dollars and then file like a uh, an objection or a complaint about the project and then tie it up for I don't know you know weeks or months. Um, You know we still have this law called the uh, called the California Environmental Quality like CEQA. It's a like a environmental law passed in the seventies, really well intended, part of a really you know powerful movement that had a lot of really good good outcomes. Um, at the same time, that law SQL was also used to block all kinds of housing developments in already built areas that are already developed. Um, and so there, there definitely needs to be some fine tuning around that. I mean, a, a very notable example is um, UC Berkeley's trying to build student housing on a lot that has, you know on a lot that has a lot of that that has been they've been unable to build on for the last 60. Years And they they came out with a proposal that would include both student housing and homeless housing. And now it's being, um, li- you know, just it was getting litigated because like student noise is an environmental quality, you know, an environmental issue, which is absurd. So um, there's lots of little things like that, you know. So there's the zoning restrictions. There's the process that allows people to uh, oppose or block, tie things up for months with small, inexpensive processes. And then there's like, you know, environmental law being abused.
0: And something I'd love to hear then is what is the direct relation, let's say, to Silicon Valley? So the relation of the ability for someone to purchase a house or to live close to work. Like, How, do you, how does tech, separate from the like how responsible is tech for this issue question, how do you think these dynamics you're describing really affect like a person who's trying to become a founder or someone who's working at an early stage company? How do you think about that?
1: There's actually a funny story. There's a famous old Tom Wolf story uh, about the founders of Intel um, in the 1960s, how they founded the company. And there was just this amazing little anecdote about how one of the founders, you know, realized that they had to move out to the Bay Area and they brought their family out and then they saw a bunch of houses that morning in Mountain View and then purchased a house by the afternoon on their literally their first or second day. And, you know, I think about my own family um, on my mom's side they are Vietnamese refugees, um, a family of uh, six sisters. And they were able to come here as refugees in the, you know, mid to late 70s. And they were able to buy a house together. I mean, cumulative together in San Jose, I want to say around 1980 or 1981. And so just thinking about those stories, they seem totally unfathomable today. Like, could a person just show up and buy a house the same day on the peninsula at Silicon Valley? No, that's, you know, people have to have, you know, an exit ex- to do that, Um or be like a FANG employee for many years. And so um, it is really meaningful. And you know, my family has had many generations of immigrants come to, to to work in the technology industry in Silicon Valley. And it's just going through that process of the 2010s and realizing how restrictive and how difficult it would be for a person in my parents' or grandparents' shoes to do the same thing, or me, or whatever, uh, that's really hard. Because i really like to have a barrier that's really welcoming and inclusive of all kinds of talent from all over the country and the world.
0: You know, something I'm curious about, I'm recording this um, from Austin, which is a, a city that's deeply integrated into the tech industry, obviously, but also there's a lot of debate around housing and growth and those different dynamics. To what degree do you think the problems that you're encountering in California are actually broader problems in the United States as a whole?
1: I, I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap. I think that, that you know, now with remote work, you know the tensions that we were seeing here are now. You can see them in Montana, you can see them in Texas, you can see them. You can see them in a lot of places. Um, you know, you could see them in the rent growth that Florida has experienced over the last two years since the pandemic. Um, and so, I think California is a canary in the coal mine for lots of other issues that other cities, other cities do face and will face. Now, I mean, Texas is has different you know, geographical or geological aspects in its favor. It isn't, you know, it isn't on an earthquake zone. It doesn't have huge mountain terrain that becomes very difficult to build on once you've built up the flatlands. There's like a lot of flatland in Texas. And so, you know, the cities in Texas, Houston, Dallas, you know, they've been able to grow kind of concentrically outward in a way that has given uh, residents in, of, of those cities like a lot more capacity to access affordable housing stock. I mean, Houston is obviously known for that, which it with it, you know, it has a very different, um, it doesn't, it doesn't use traditional zoning in the way that other cities do. That said, the affordability problems are real. Um, Texas kind of has the property tax system that California sort of used to have before ni- the 1970s. And so like as your home value appreciated your property taxes rise. And so that can create affordability issues for current homeowners in the way that Californians don't experience. So like California has this law where if you buy a house, your property tax is kind of a fixed or like capped at a certain rate of growth. Um, it can only, your property tax uh, can only grow at, you know, maybe one, I think it's like 2% and then no more than 1% every year. And so, you know, if you're a, per, a person who bought a home in the seventies, your tax rate might be a, like a minuscule fraction of your neighbor's tax uh, assessment. And so that keeps homeowners in their homes, but it creates all kinds of weird, perverse incentives around development and around um, kind of city and municipal behavior um, that make it really hard for new people to come in and afford uh, to live in the state.
0: You know, I'm really curious, when you're telling um, the history of 20th century twentieth century housing and the expectations that really built into how folks who are coming up sort of see their housing opportunities, What what would you say on a personal level is your like ideal vision for what housing looks like? So if I think of that twentieth century model, I think of you go to the city and then you go move to the suburbs and the cycle just kind of continues forever and ever and ever um onwards, like what would be your own personal vision of how that works or if it could be seen?
1: I think people should have more choice. and by more choice, what I mean is you know if someone wants to stay I mean one issue with with you know a lot of American city zoning is, You know, it's really hard to zone and finance for large units in in kind of your city centers. And so we end up, you know, the the life cycle that you're describing is a function of the choices that we've made. You know, in other countries in big cities, a family can choose to raise a family in the summers, but they can also choose to be in a city center because there's more unit types that accommodate like larger households. And there are definitely some cities who have made positive steps in that direction. Like Vancouver, you know, is very intentional about zoning for families in the city center. But American cities are mostly not. Historically, what we've done is said, you know, you have office towers in the center and then you have suburbs for housing on the outside. And, you know, if you look at our regional transit system, BART was really designed around the suburban commuter, commuting into the central business district. And now, obviously, post-COVID, we're going to have... We're not going to have, we are having really serious conversations around, wow, wow, what is going to be the use of our central business district? What is its future going forward? What kind of occupancy can we expect? And, you know, it's a very, very complex problem around city incentives and what building owners want to do. But there's also a lot of opportunity there in terms of thinking about, like, we can have more housing, more distributed in more places so people have more choice about where and how they want to live. Um, instead of being kind of shoehorned into these more prescriptive specific options.
0: On what level did the COVID era remote work dynamic kind of upend what you're discussing? A, in the sense that obviously remote work hypothetically creates an escape hatch. If I'm a founder, early stage employee, um, hypothetically, if my company is remote friendly, I don't have to try to get a house in the Bay Area. I could live somewhere else that's cheaper. But then two, if I, marshal 20-something up and coming, have the ability to live somewhere else, hypothetically, that could force a region to be more competitive with its, how the, how, with its housing stock because there's not just the same guarantee that people are going to live there. To what degree were the two dynamics I just described true or not?
1: Um, I would say they're very true. I mean, I mean you look at the the pricing and the rental movement and the rental market, it's very obvious that like the San, the Bay Area market is soft, both in homeownership and rental pricing relative to other regions because people do have more choice. They can choose to be here, they can choose to be in another city that aligns with their lifestyle more or that is closer to where they grew up or their family or their extended networks. Um, and I do think it's gonna make it's going to make cities much more more competitive and more thoughtful about how they incentivize people to live there. I I do think it's gonna be much more complicated. Like, you know, the conventional package of I'm gonna give some business tax breaks, like I think that's a lot more complicated now because even if you offered it to their business, would their employees actually be there? Would the jobs actually be there? I I don't really know. And so I think that kind of incentivizes cities to compete more on probably lifestyle and amenities.
0: Yeah, so another question that I wanna ask, I'd like to just think about this whole frame given the varieties of experiences that you have. So this broader series that we're doing on the deep end right now is focused on, hey, there are these big problems, there are ways that startups and technology can address those problems outside of traditional processes. What do you think about that idea? Like in the sense that there's a version of you who wasn't a reporter who wasn't joining the board, you know, the Yimby board, and just instead was like working on um, your startup. Like, to what degree are these interchangeable as means of enacting change?
1: If you kind of look at the choices that I've made, I think a central thesis of like what what I do and how I operate is that you need to do both. I mean, if you were dealing with software only, I mean, even software only problems are not software only problems anymore. Like. I mean, you look at like how much Facebook, TikTok, like all of them have to now engage with Congress and Mm -hmm. and what that, you know, implications of what their products do and, you know, manifest at scale. Or if you look at the implications of large language models and the whole Pandora's box that's going to open, like everything, you know, you can build in the private sector, but I I do think that you also need to have a strong, you know, especially as you scale a company. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily do this like pre-Series B, but like (laughs) Series B and above, I do think that, If you know there are going to be a lot of, you know, community, society, public policy implications of what you're doing, I think it's good to invest in that early. And so, I mean, obviously the choices I've made are around being highly engaged, you know, like investing in private sector entrepreneurs that are attacking this problem, but also being highly engaged in the the public policy world. And so, like, you know, like a lot of the deals I've done... Uh, I've invested in companies doing, like, factory-built prefab housing. Um, I invest in a company called Obodu that is doing accessory dwelling units, and they have been doing them up and down the West Coast from Seattle to San Diego, Diego, making it really easy to add, you know, a second or sometimes even third unit to an existing lot. Um, And that's a meaningful form of housing, especially as we have, you know, like a lot of aging Americans and folks that, you know, might want to age in place or age with, you know, extended families, and I've also done. Um, I've done a lot of deals in like construction efficiency. We invested in a company in Southern California called Curry that is doing last mile delivery of construction supplies. You know, 2014 to 2020, I was doing a lot on zoning and in. You know, in this current environment, a lot of the progress we've made on zoning and, and and like process restrictions, like we have the ball moving on that, and there's lots of changes happening every year, at the California state level. I mean, the you know the biggest bottleneck right now is is. Is financing as a result of you know, the Fed's sudden changes in interest rate policy um, and supply chain issues. So like we're doing a lot on helping construction supplies get to their destinations faster. I've also invested in a company that's focused on on permitting. You know, we're tackling a lot of different areas. There's lots of things that founders can do to make processes um, more efficient. And you know, a lot of these industries are very complex and have lots of specialty jobs that are in fact enormous markets. And so I, I think there's a lot for entrepreneurs to do, but we also have to simultaneously have the h- humility and reality that like, you know, understand the reality that like the government government engagement and, you know, government policies are a huge part of our, um, a huge part of addressing this question as well.
0: I want to zoom in on your construction point. I'm sure you see this tweet go viral every once in a while where it shows in China, they're building a factory or a house or an apartment building just super, super, super quickly with the obvious implication that in the United States, such a process is not happening as quickly. If you're thinking about that real stereotype of our construction discourse, is the difference in speed, does that come down to the supply chains on goods are better in a country like China? Um, The materials are more efficient or more easily reproducible. The permitting... Uh, regime is better. How do you think about like those types of bifurcated dynamics?
1: They're a soft authoritarian government. So like if they want to, if they want to plan something at a federal level, they're going to do it regardless of any implications or downstream consequences it has for lots of other, you know, types of constituents, you know, whether those are like Han Chinese constituents or minorities or whatever, we don't have that process here that our process that after the 1950s and 60s, after we had a more technocratic approach, top-down approach towards development in this country, um, a lot of things happened. Like freeways were built in primarily African-American neighborhoods, and that had environmental and health consequences for those communities. And so, and then, you know, also they Tulsa tried to build in white communities as well. And um, there were freeway revolts in the Bay Area. And um, as a result of that, there was a whole, set of processes and laws that were added to add more bottoms-up feedback into, into the system. Now, you know, I would say that like, I mean, if you followed, you know, some of Ezra Klein's recent interviews or even folks on, mm. on, on that side of the, like the political spectrum, they would say like maybe some of those laws have gone too far and added too many choke points into in, our development process such that we have like a kind of a vitocracy where any small kind of interest group can, can plug up um, a project of any size. So, you know, there's definitely a process that needs to happen now in our political system around kind of tweaking those laws to make sure they give bottoms-up input into, a, into like a, a development process, but also don't let that stand in the way of much-needed, you know, like, like student and homeless housing, for example.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, something we haven't talked about, but a lot of your investments intersect with this is uh, the commuting topic? Like what's your philosophy around commutes and how are some of the startups here like investing in or working with like thinking around that question?
1: Um, I don't actually know if I have that many commuting um, related investments. I mean, I I do think for a large subset of careers like remote work is really transformative. And we have folks that are in the office only a few days a week versus um, every day of the week. But I, I, I you have to ask a what do you, yeah what do so you I think
0: I think an example of that would be probably cul Um so like car free yeah. neighborhoods, like the dynamics yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that again, this goes back to this question of choice. Like we've been offered a very specific menu of choices in this country. like you, you know, you've got to live in your suburban home and drive everywhere if you want to raise a family but we don't have other options. We don't have, there aren't that many other options for that because like our, the, the downtowns, the walkable neighborhoods that have, you know, in recent decades commanded a price premium to non-walkable neighborhoods haven't been offered in, in abundance to, to folks. And so like Ryan Johnson, I mean, he should, maybe you should have him on your show. Um, you know, he, he grew up in Phoenix. He and his co-founder are multi-generation Arizonans. And, he loves bikes, e-bikes, mobility. He loves walkable neighborhoods and communities. And he's doing something pretty extraordinary there. He's building, like, I, I toured it a few months ago and it, he walked through it and it feels like, I don't know, it almost kind of feels like walking through, like, an old neighborhood in Spain or Greece or something, but it's in the middle of Arizona. And they've done really an exceptional job with kind of seeding that whole project with... Um, with different community stakeholders in the form of, like, their F&B partners. And they've leased out everything that they have. They fully leased out everything that they put on the market so far. Um, but, yeah, no, he, I mean, that's really about offering more choice. And so the more that they're able to do it in more historically car-centric cities in America, that goes towards this idea that people should have different kinds of living options.
0: Kind of going back to how your journalistic deep engagement with these issues, writing experience, prepped you to be a VC, prepped you to be a board member? Because I think a lot of founders or ambitious persons who are listening to this kind of conversation are going to see different parts of your background appeal to themselves or be something that they've themselves engaged with. So how do you think about how the like professional side of this all fits together with kind of like the deeply serious policy stuff we're talking about?
1: I mean, I think that being a reporter makes you really curious about the world. Want, makes you want to ask lots of questions. Um, it definitely, certainly makes you a great like networker. Like I, I, you know, as a result of my career, I know so many different founders and people and people and so many different intersections of life. And I have a lot of access to different viewpoints. And I understand like if a founder is going to tackle like a really hard, complicated problem like climate or or housing affordability. There's folks that you have to know on the private sector side who are great at scaling companies and there're folks that you have to know to kind of, you know, get things moving to make what they're doing possible on the public policy side. And typically like these types of companies require, you know, engagement a little bit earlier than other types of companies.
0: What's your advice for serving on a board of a policy organization? not not just getting there, but just it's, if we put it this way, like I come from the DC space and if there's one thing I picked up doing this podcast, it's that a, a 501 C anything is desperately different than a startup environment on a couple of different levels. Yeah. How would you think about navigating that if you're someone who's listening and interested in getting to that type of work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely have enjoyed being on boards of newer organizations like it might be harder to navigate like a standing one that's been around second several decades that has lots of ways and particular practices of doing things. Um, you know, the thing that I've liked about being on the California MB board is it is like being on a startup. Mm. You know, half the board are like either founders or other investors. And so the level and caliber of management advice that Brian Hanlon is getting is, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And then obviously half the board are, are public policy folks. And so it's just this wonderful mix of... Just all the ins and outs and the nitty gritty of the the political process, like what laws and who who needs what votes for what to get something through, but also just a really really high caliber level of just managerial and organizational management advice. Yeah, I, I, I you know like I definitely prefer you know if you're standing up a new org that exists to have, be around, you know like a, another org that I kind of um, that I, I help stand up in the last year. There's an End megafires org that um, is run by. Basically, they're advocating for more federal funding and focus on wildfire mitigation. And I and a couple other uh, venture investors and folks put that together because um, obviously wildfire is a major issue in California. But that's also another one where you're like standing up a new org, you have new, you have new goals, like how do you get to a million acres in California doing prescribed burns a year? Or how do you get to like a meaningful kind of federal allocation of dollars towards not just like almost military-like response of firefighters to a fire that's already way out of control, but getting in all that stuff that is sort of preventative and early around, you know, I, I don't know if this is well known to you, but, like, um, California is, like, designed to burn. It, it basically, it's uh, it's trees, you know, some, many of its most famous trees reproduce through wildfire, so wildfire is kind of a necessary part of our environment, but, it, you know, in the last century, we've kind of suppressed it in an unnatural way, and we need to go back to a practice of doing like low-level, low-intensity prescribed burns that take out a lot of brush that contributes to these really explosive ad-control fires. And so we have to do more around proactive measures of managing the issue rather than reactive. And so we've set up up an organization around that. And so I kind of prefer finding great political talent and then kind of unleashing them on a significant advocacy problem and then working with other folks in the public sector and and, and in the venture world to do that.
0: You just hinted at a interesting debate that comes up whenever anyone I encounter in the broader Silicon Valley space who's interested in addressing an issue is going to inevitably confront the debate over, does change come about by starting something new or by integrating yourself into a legacy system that, quote unquote, knows how things work? Because obviously, if you are coming from a tech space, I think a lot of your Um, Not just like personal preferences, but a lot of the narratives that you have are built around, you have legacy, ossified organizations and our jobs as founders, investors, et cetera, to like stand up new things that can improve upon those models. How do you think about that debate? Because I just think that sometimes, I think in your case, you have the right background to be able to adjudicate like when something new is value add. But I also just know there's been a million, let's just say uh, failed side projects the past two years that if that energy had been put into integrating into like i don't know attending the local city council meeting where the vitocracy actually goes down something useful could have happened like how, how do you think about this
1: um I, I think it's totally case by case i mean you you kind of pointed out like i'm going to adjudicate each case and look at it like yeah. i think every public pol- every problem is different and i mean specifically in the case of california I me mean, like you know, we literally did evaluate a number of different approaches. and Brian Hanlon looked at it and he realized like trying to jam yourself through a hundred city council meetings is just not a scalable or effective approach. And the more effective thing to do was to go through Sacramento. And so he he set up a new organization to go through Sacramento. I mean, I'm also involved, you know, like I also participate and involved in older organizations as well. but I just and, and the other thing I would say is like specifically in the N Fires org, like the, the person who's in charge of that is Matt Weiner, who is like, Oh, it's a new org, but like he was point person for uh, managing the California congressional delegation. And he's a really seasoned hand, both in state and federal politics. And so like oftentimes you're taking people who are part of the legacy system, who know it and who have lots of social capital and political capital in that world, and um, you're giving them the capacity to... Recognize, like, I can't do everything inside the system, but if I had, you know, some freedom from all of the restrictions of being in, in that world, but I can, like, apply it from the outside, then they can have um, a lot more leverage.
0: As we're, we're nearing the end, I want to just hit at uh, two other areas and sectors that you invest in that have been hinted upon, but we haven't been very explicit about. So you, you mentioned just, like, climate tech, and then you mentioned, like, prop tech. Um, could you just discuss those two areas and how they intersect with this broad conversation of your investment focus?
1: Yeah, no. So we we we've done. I mean, I've done a couple of climate tech deals. Um, one is in, like, relatedly, like a wildfire detection system um, called Pano. Um, they are building a full stack hardware software system that helps uh, communities and governments from Colorado, Washington, Australia um, manage and uh, detect wildfires and then maintain situa- situational awareness through the the season if you know between prescribed burns and then non non intentional wildfires, so I've, I've that that is a better around climate adaptation, and you know there there's also I've also done a deal in a direct air capture company. I mean I think I'm just really, again this is like a similar problem. You take unleashed entrepreneurs, you try to attack real world problems that need to get addressed, um, but you also engage you know in public policy. You do both and. Having some been someone again who's been you know a lifelong Californian, you know I grew up in the state and I remember September's and October's being hot, but not like not like a scene out of Dante's Inferno, you know. Um, so <laughs> literally, like, yeah. And I mean, I mean, you know, of the bad seasons that we had a couple years ago, I mean, a lot of a lot of it, frankly, unfortunately, is already baked in, given like the cumulative carbon emissions that we've already had. So even if we are able to, you know, reach not reached, but like you know, very get get to somewhere close to Paris Agreement goals. There's still a lot of significant changes that have already been baked into you know how how much the Earth is warmed already, um, and so I just feel I have I have kids like I want to have a world that's nice to live in for them. I don't want them to like be breathing unchokeable, un- unbreathable air, and so we've got to do what we can.
0: You know, your, your reference to being a lifelong Californian gets at an ever-present high-stakes, low-stakes discourse that's been going on for the past few years, which is just the debate over, like, where should you be if you're building? You could move to Austin. You could move to New York City. You could move to Miami, of course. Now it's, I think, fashionable, at least on Twitter, take with that what you may, to kind of say, okay, I'm, I had my time off. I'm moving back to the Bay Area, right? How, how do you think about, just, like, where should you be building discourse?
1: Again, depends on what you want to build. Like, if you're building something in, you know, e-commerce or fashion, obviously it might make sense to be in New York or Los Angeles. Um, if you're building, and then even, even even if there's some notable companies like OpenAI in San Francisco, I mean, like, my understanding is that the AI community is really widely dispersed as well. So, like, I mean, I, I'm here in part because, my fa- you know, my family's here my community's here that said, like, betting betting against the Bay Area is like betting against James Cameron. And like, <laughs> you know, he disappeared in this whole, like, what is this Avatar 2? And then Avatar 2 comes out and it's like a $2 billion movie. That's, that's like the Bay Area. Like, it, you know, it goes through its phases. I've been through many phases, like in the 2000s when we went through the first crash and it was like, where are the jobs going? Are the jobs even gonna be in America? And then of course, like it came back and there's just, a huge depth of talent here. And I mean, this doesn't, this doesn't like denigrate or take away from other cities that you can build in. Like I'm, we have lots of companies every, everywhere. And I'm, you know, we don't, we're, we're not prescriptive with our founders. Like you need to be here to do your company. You know, if I think about, you know, some of the other companies we have in the por- portfolio, like Curry's and Ventura, and, you know, they've been able to build like a really tight knit company and culture there. Um, which is very distinct from what you'd experience in Northern California. So, you know, I, I think that you can build a great company anywhere. I think it's highly dependent on the problem you're trying to solve. And, and then as a firm, we're not really prescriptive about where you need to be. Even if I am a Bay Area lifer, even <laughs> if I am.
0: I'm so glad you used the uh, James Cameron Avatar 2 metaphor, because it kind of gets at I think good advice for folks in the sense that before Avatar 2 came out there was a lot of discourse of there are no memes about Avatar it's not culturally in the discussion like how could this be successful and no memes really emerged out of Avatar 2 after you know a week or so so you kind of could say okay we've all moved on yet the movie's chugging its way um to 2 billion dollars worldwide it suggests that founders the order is basically everyone we shouldn't be too dis- we-, we shouldn't be too distracted no, I mean- from discourse by <laughs> discourse, he's,
1: he's a man who is just focused on, you know, his stories are not very complex, but he's focused on, you know, pushing the technological edge of storytelling. And that's what he's been doing his entire career. And he's been laser focused on that. And there are a lot of founders like that. And I think the Bay Area as a region is kind of like that. It's just like it'll go through its phases and people will say it's out of the fashion. And then there will be some people or some person <laughs> that have been checking away quietly for you know, however many years and then boom, GPT-4, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think the the last big question here is, um, we're talking about building, we're talking about big problems, like what would, if you could just, and this isn't, this isn't the same as a request for startups question because this is me more asking 2014, 2015, Kim, what are other big problems that you think in the year 2023, like we're not in the 2010s anymore, um, founder personality type folks, enterprising journalists, et cetera, activists in organizations should be focused on like other than the ones that we've described here.
1: On the housing issue, it's really like right now it's really uh, a rates financing issue. So, I mean, I think that's that's obviously much more of a public policy problem. It's, it's <laughs> like we're trying to attack inflation, but we're also crushing, we're also like long-term actually crushing the housing pipeline and cru- housing affordability. And in, in reality, we probably should be Engaging in more like other policies like, I don't know, immigration and child care that would enable like more labor to be unlocked in our economy such that we're not running at this overheated pace and the Fed is in this kind of no win position of inflation and banking crises. So that I mean, that that that's a very complicated one. But I mean, I think climate continues to be climate. You know, is going to also have its waves of where it's very hot and out of fashion, and it's going to. But it is a problem that's going to be continuing, and we're looking at a number of companies, from ones that are on the bleeding edge of the frontier, um, where it's like, does this work? Can this work? Is there a market? To ones that are doing a lot of kind of low-hanging fruit of, you know, the IRA unlocked a lot of um, incentives and capital around electrification for for regular Americans, whether that's in their homes, their cars, whatever. There's definitely a lot of low-hanging fruit around that they're, they're about, like, making those processes easy, more seamless, no more no-brainer for, for consumers.
0: Yeah, and actually, here's the real last question. To what degree is a lot of the it's time to build ambitious policy-minded energy, like a zero interest rate phenomenon, um, that's going to get lost as folks kind of struggle through, like, the hard times? Because like, that's my concern. I'm curious if you have that concern or if you see that at all.
1: Um, I see it. I mean, I do think that anybody, I mean, the reality is and if you're doing anything that has like a real world component, like whether you're in a low interest rate regime or a high interest rate regime on a relative basis, it's always, it's, it's going to be hard for it to get the same level of widespread investor interest because, you know, software margins are what software margins are, right? And like you look at a software margin versus real, like those are different businesses. And so like in a low interest rate regime, I mean, these companies were, you know, these companies are able to raise funding at the same time, you know, there's lots of other NFTs and lots of other stuff being funded. Right. And then in a high interest rate regime, you know, climate continues to be climate, climate deals and climate investments continue to be really hot. I mean, even even considering all of those things, there's a lot of competition over them, um, even at the later and growth stages. So um, for now, not not super concerned, but I definitely, you know, share some of the questions that you're having for sure.
0: That's an excellent place to leave it. Um, Kim, thank you so much for joining us on The Deep End. Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on The Deep End. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.